Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas in personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hi, folks. Welcome to the Mind Valley podcast. As you know, life is about decisions. We make decisions, probably hundreds of them, on a constant basis. And the quality of your life is really going to be determined by the quality of your decisions. So what if there were specific mental models that you could use so that you could make smarter decisions? Think of the impact of this. Think of just how much your relationships or your investing or your business would change if you could upgrade your decision-making capabilities by 5, 10, 20%. What if significantly more? On our podcast today, we have Gabriel Weinberg and Lauren McCann, and both of these individuals are MIT graduates. Let's start with Lauren. Lauren has a PhD from MIT in operational research, worked in pharmaceutical, in the pharmaceutical industry for nine years, and Gabriel is the founder of DuckDuckGo, the renegade search engine that does 37 million searches a day. It is a competitor to Google. So I bet you're going to find this conversation intriguing and mind-blowing because it's not every day that I get to bring on two MIT genius minds onto the Mind Valley podcast. So Lauren and Gabriel, welcome to Mind Valley. Thank, Thank you for you. having us. Now, I also have to say that you both wrote a book called Super Thinking, Upgrade Your Reasoning and Make Better Decisions with Mental Models. All right. So tell us, what is a mental model? So a mental model is just a concept that you use to simplify the world around you. So we like to say in the introduction, you're used to addition, right? You learn addition when you're a kid, very simple arithmetic, but then you learn multiplication. And once you learn multiplication, it's so much faster than doing repeated addition. So like, say you have 42 times seven, you could do 42 plus 42 plus 42, and that takes you a while. But if you just do, you could use multiplication, you can do it instantly on a calculator. And that's what mental models are. They're, they're, they're things, concepts that can help you just make shortcuts in your thinking. We say upgrade your strategic thinking. That sounds intriguing. Now, how would these mental models be applied in day-to-day -day life? So what's interesting is they come from all sorts of disciplines. And this came about from one of the best investors in the world, Charlie Munger, who's at uh, Warren Buffett's right-hand man at Berkshire Hathaway. And what he found out from his years of investing is if you learn the biggest concepts from the major disciplines like physics, economics, philosophy, they can actually be applied outside those disciplines to help you on your day-to-day -day life, including investing, but everywhere. And so as an example, from physics, there's a concept of critical mass. And so critical mass, as people may know, is a nuclear energy concept. It's related to the atomic bomb. You need a critical mass of material to get an explosion, but it's also a very useful business concept. So a business or a product can have critical mass. And if you realize that it's that type of product, then you can reason about it way more effectively. You can say, what would it take to get this product to have critical mass? Um, and then it even applies beyond business, you know, personal life. A party needs critical mass to be a good party. A political movement. <laughs> a political <laughs> movement, exactly. And so a concept is very versatile. And if you know it, then you can really shortcut your thinking and be like, okay, I realize that's a critical mass problem, so I know a lot about it instantly. And there are about 300 of these concepts that really help you upgrade your reasoning, and that's what we lay out in the book. Awesome. Now, Charlie Munger said 
80 or 90 important models will carry about 90% of the freight in making you a worldly wise person. How many mental models are you sharing in the book? I believe you said 300. Yes. Yes. So they're very interrelated. (laughs) (laughs) And so I don't want to scare anybody, but we actually combine them into nine easy chapters and they're thematic. And so one I'm sure would be really relevant to this audience is um, how to spend your time wisely. So all the mental models to make the most out of your day. Um, And we have another chapter about um, basically dealing with conflict situations and related to influence. And so how to influence uh, people and how people are trying to influence you. Um, And so we're grouping them all together in kind of an easier, easier format. format. I see. Okay. So there are a couple of mental models from your book that our researchers found very interesting. For example, the third story model, the sunk cost policy model, Hanlon's razor model, forcing functions, opportunity cost. There are so many we could choose from. Let's dive into a couple that you think might be extremely relevant to an audience of personal growth enthusiasts like Mind Valley. One that we use a lot in DuckDuckGo and really help make our company better is forcing function. And so what this is, is a place often in your calendar where you're writing in and blocking time um, to force yourself to do something. And in our case, a lot is critical thinking. And to operationalize this, for example, for every project that we kick off at DuckDuckGo, we have a kickoff call and a postmortem, regardless of whether the project went well or bad. So what it is, is it forces us to get together and think critically about that project. And to give you some other example for business, we have a one-on-one, everyone has a one-on-one with their career advisor every week. And it's a time set aside for them to think critically about their week, what their top priority is and whatnot. And if you do that, um, it's if you don't do that, it's just easy to like let things go. Uh, but if you really force yourself to do it, uh, it's so simple, but it works so well as a model. And it can be personal too, you know, you, you schedule your time yeah. for the gym. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, one of the other models that we discuss in the book is making commitments. And a forcing function is a type of commitment that you're making um, to yourself or to a family member or a coworker that you're going to do something. And making that commitment makes sure that it actually happens. So a forcing function, if, if I get this right, would be blocking out part of your calendar deliberately every month or every week to force you to come together for a decision or for some action that you know is necessary for continual progress. That's right. And it often can force you not only to think critically about like, are you making the right choices, but especially if it involves other people, it can force you to have difficult, more difficult conversations because difficult conversations are so easy to put off, especially in workplace or relationship wise. But if you have a set time and it's kind of an open agenda or it's already a set agenda that we're going to review, you know, how our progress is, then it kind of forces everybody to have that conversation that you might as well, that you might otherwise have put off. That That's interesting. So I, I want to share something which I, I, I'm practicing, which I think may be a forcing function and it might be a good tip for the people listening. You tell me if I'm right. So every Monday, Thursday and Friday, I schedule lunch with a different team in my company and it rotates. So every team has lunch with me every nine weeks uh, throughout the calendar year. And the reason for that is basically to ensure that group of people in this team, we have 25 teams can come together 
have a, a open, transparent conversation over good food and raise any issues. And during this conversation, we address three things. What do we start doing? What should we stop doing? And what should we continue doing? Would that fit the definition of a forcing function? Definitely. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that's the perfect way to do it. Um, and that's we do that exact kind of thing at DuckDuckGo. I think one of the things, another item that you've done is just, um, you know, setting aside time for personal development or personal growth. I mean, I think it's really easy in the in the day to day work schedule to get caught up in how am I advancing this project, but not necessarily how am I advancing myself as a person and a contributor. So that model is also a forcing function. Yes. Yeah. And this way, this is what we talk about relating them. Yeah. That reminds me of, of the podcast I recorded yesterday with Robin Sharma. He wrote, he wrote this book, The 5am Club, right? And The 5am Club is essentially a forcing function. Get your butt out of bed at 5am every single day. Spend 20 minutes exercising, 20 minutes journaling and meditation, and 20 minutes watching um, online educational content. So um, perfect. That That is how I can see that fully applicable in the personal growth space. Oh, yeah. I mean, so that is a good example. When you start thinking about the mental model lens, you can think about how do I add more forcing functions into my life to really advance my goals? Um, and we cover some other related models like that. And one is called the top idea of your mind. And so the idea here is that when you're thinking unconsciously, you're in the shower, you know, you're just you know, sleeping in the, car. in the car, there's often you're coming back to one core idea. There's like one thing that's generally on your mind. Um, and because we're really bad at multitasking, another thing we explore in the book, <laughs> um, you really want to focus on one idea, but you want to make that idea the, right, the idea. right idea, exactly, the critical idea. And so if you have a forcing function, say at the top, beginning of your week, um, or even the day, like you said, and say, what is the one thing I really want to accomplish today? You can try to force yourself to make that the top idea in your mind. And then um, you can really kind of put all your energy behind that idea. And so where this really comes up is when people are trying to solve really hard problems and need to do creative thinking. There's this other concept we're talking in the book called deep work, which is based on another book. And Often the hardest problems require this kind of deep work thinking like that doesn't you can't just push yourself through it. You might need to go for a walk. You might need to take a shower, that kind of thing. Um, and if you don't really prioritize and force yourself to prioritize that as a top idea in your mind, you risk never solving that problem, never really breaking through it. I see. I see. So that those are incredible concepts of mental models that we can apply to work, what are some mental models that we can apply to our day-to-day -day personal life? Hanlon's razor sounds fascinating. Yes. Um, so this is a concept that really comes up a lot um, once you know it and think about it. And what it is, is you're interacting with people all the time and they irritate you <laughs> because people say irritating things or you get a text message that, you know, might seem annoying. Um, and we have an immediate tendency to think, oh, that person's doing it out of malice. You know, that person has some emotional. They have a problem with me or there's something I did that made them do that. And maybe, you know, they were just having a bad day. And so one of the things that a similar related model that we have is. Um, is the most respectful most interpretation. And so these are both related to the same concept is when you get a, you know, a text from somebody and you're immediately thinking, 
I'm reading into this. It might be something bad and you're getting into an emotional trigger space. Instead, you want to think, what's the most respectful interpretation? And usually what Hanlon's Razor says is it's probably not malice. It's probably just carelessness. Like the person who just wrote like, okay, to your text was probably just in a hurry, you know? And, And instead of thinking that they're blowing you off, you want to kind of think more positively about it until you have more information. Um, and that really, if you apply that all the time, it just um, doesn't take up as much of your life, you know, just thinking about. <laughs> yeah. Just uh, a more positive way to live. Yeah. No, that, 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 that's interesting. That's a powerful rule to live by. Never attribute to malice what is adequately explained by callousness. Yeah, exactly. That Hanlon guy was really wise. <laughs> it's it's a application of something people may have heard about which is called occam's razor which is the simplest explanation is usually the true and that's the case here is that the simplest explanation for people's behavior is usually the path of least resistance like they were just being careless and they weren't actually out to get you um, and this is really important in a company setting too um, or in a family setting when people are scattered around the country and so like DuckDuckGo is a remote company. So everyone's on video in different time zones. And my family is um, all scattered across our country. And so we're not in the same place often. And so that's often interacting with text and email and things like that, that are really easy to read into wrong. And so this is really a statement to run your life and company as giving people the benefit of doubt, I mean, is another way to say yeah. it. So that that's a really powerful idea, something which I think is so applicable in day to day life. Now, another one which I think that you guys write about, which is beautiful, is sunk cost fallacy. So um, that's the idea that um, just because you you put a lot of work into something or maybe a lot of money into something doesn't mean that sometimes it's time to walk away. I think a lot of people. Uh, feel like, you know, I have so many years into this career or I paid a lot of money for those tickets and I have to go to this, you know, concert. And and they feel like because they've put some commitment into it that they can't walk away. It's kind of the opposite of of the forcing function is that sometimes we we create a forcing function, but we don't reevaluate whether or not that's actually going to maximize our happiness by continuing along that path. Yeah, it's related. It's a um, related to the path of least resistance because the path of least resistance for things is just to keep going at what you're already doing. It's status quo. It's very hard to uh, evaluate and then leave something where you've already put a lot of effort into. But what you have to realize is you already put that effort into it. It's a sunk cost. You've already, you can't get it back. And so you really have to evaluate things as if that cost doesn't exist because um, you can't get it back. Um, and that's really what it is. I remember Tim Ferriss writing about this. I believe it was in one of his early books, the, the, uh, the four hour work week, right? And he spoke about how so many people make this mistake. You start a movie, you go 20 minutes in and it sucks and you know, it's going to suck and you know, it's not going to get better. But what do most people do? They continue watching till the end and waste another hour plus of their lives And um, I guess this also happens in decisions we make. I was having a conversation with a friend the other day who had attended a a seminar, um, a weekend seminar. And after a couple of hours, he felt that it wasn't for him, but he stayed anyway. And I asked him, why did you stay? And his response was, because I'm not a quitter. Right. And you see how illogical that is. 
Um, so would these be examples of sunk cost fallacy? Definitely. I mean, I think the quitting is is what gets people caught up a lot of times is the idea that it's like, I'm not a quitter and I'm not going to quit this. But sometimes you need to know when maybe that's just not the great thing for you. I think this happens a lot with relationships, even where people are dating for too long, where they're like, you know, I've, I've we've been together for three years. We have to, you know, suck it up and figure out how to make it work. And, you know, Sometimes it's maybe the best for everyone to walk away from a relationship. It could be a friendship. It could be a marriage. I mean, it could be anything. Right. And and in fact, the sunk cost fallacy idea is is uh, was one of the reasons why my wife and I uh, recently uh, did a conscious uncoupling after 19 years together. And everyone is like, what the hell? 19 years? Why not just try to make it work out? But we're like, no, we're, this is cool. We've put 19 years in and um, and it's it logically because we are, we are both so engineering logically minded i i think we were able to fall out of that trap and it's been amazing it's been wonderful uh but yes i can see how sunk cost policy is one of the biggest mental flaws that we make in our day-to-day decision yeah the hope with mental models in general is once you know them and have a name for it that it's easier to change your decision-making, right? Because you can be like in the middle of this and say, you know what, this is a sunk cost fallacy problem. And that helps you then say, okay, I'm making this fallacy now, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna escape it. Oh, I love that, I love that. When you can put a label on that, you can bring it back. You can, you, you, you can activate it as a, as a means of understanding the world. Okay, this is exciting. What are some other mental models that you think we totally need to know? So there's a related one that helps you kind of steer yourself when once you recognize you might be on the wrong path, and that is the concept of a North Star. So the North Star in science is Polaris, and it's a star that is actually pointed due north, and uh, explorers have been using it for millennia to just navigate, navigate to the north <laughs> and figure out what direction to go to. But as a metaphor and mental model, um, especially personally, it's trying to identify what is it you're really after? What is your real goal succinctly for the next, say, five, 10 years? And if you can identify that, then you can put a lot of your decisions in that context, right? And you can move towards that. If you don't have a North Star, by contrast, how do you know you're even going in the right direction? Uh, you kind of don't. And so we kind of, it's, you can think of it as a personal mission statement. Um, and we, it, it works equally well in business too. Um, but you, we recommend really writing that down and trying to articulate, and it could change over time. Absolutely. This is probably one of the toughest things to do, right? It, when you talk about North, North Star, it's like finding your mission, finding your purpose. It's it, but it seems way more complex than that. How would you answer that? What is your North Star, Gabriel? Yeah. So my North Star has been to make a positive maximize a positive impact on the world. Um, And it is why I wrote this book and wrote the last book and why um, I work on DuckDuckGo. Um, And that's been mine. (laughs) Uh, Operationalized for DuckDuckGo, you know, our our North Star is to raise the standard of trust online. Um, And we base all our decisions around that. Does this decision really going to help raise trust online, then we kind of go for it. And if not, we don't. But it is very difficult. And I think you could have different versions of that. So we list some in the book as examples of like 
what people's might be. And it might be as mundane if you're a teenager, like I want to get to college, you know, and 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 do that. Or it could be, it could be a career goal. You know, it could be it could be a family goal. Like it could be just like I really I really want to have, you know, a better personal life, a better work life balance and have some you know time for my family and figure out a way that I can have a career that that makes that work. But it would it re- right. So we're not saying it has to be, you know, you're change the world, cure all the <laughs> cure all the world ills. Maybe your North Star really is to make a lot of money. And, you know, and that's your goal for the next 10 years. But whatever it is, it really helps you then make these bigger, especially bigger decisions as to what your career move is or what your, you know, life, other life choices. I, I love that. These these are powerful ideas. Now, there's another idea from the book. And, um, you know, what's interesting about this podcast is we as we explore the concept of mental models. Right. And again, this is from the book Super Thinking, Upgrade Your Reasoning and Make Better Decisions with Mental Models. As we explore all of these mental models, we're touching on so many different powerful tips on how to improve our personal lives and our work lives. I'm so excited about diving deeper into the book. And um, I want to I want to ask you about this one because I think this is fascinating. The third story model. Yes. So in any conflict scenario, there's two sides of the story, right? So there's what you would tell me what happened, and then I'd go talk to the other person, and they would tell me a different story. Um, Then there's the third story. And the third story is if you filmed the interaction you had or that created this conflict, or an objective, a real objective observer were to tell me really what happened, that's the third story. Um, And so the idea with the third story is once you know it, you want to put yourself into that third story position as best as possible and try to think objectively about the situation, because that's really um, taking your emotional biases and other things out of it and will really help you get things accomplished um, and is really essential for conflict resolution. Yeah, I mean, back to Hanlon's razor, I mean, it's a similar idea of trying to, to, to take your emotion out of the equation and think about, you know, objectively what what is happening here and what had happened and not and not reading into things and and kind of coloring things by past history, just like what would someone else see in this situation? This concept came out of a book called Difficult Conversations from the Harvard Negotiation Project. And it really is on the path to get into another mental model, which is the win-win, which people have probably heard of, which is the opposite of kind of the zero-sum game. So when you have a lot of conflict or negotiation scenarios, a lot of people approach it with, you know, if I win, you have to lose. But in reality, the best deals are win-win deals. You know, we figure out a compromise, a compromise or a give and take because you value certain things, I value other things. And so if you think from a third story, it really helps you get to a win-win scenario much easier. I see. I see. Now, I love how these models can be interconnected. What would be a couple of mental models that you think we can apply to um, to behavior and habits. I'm fascinated by this because at Mindvalley, we are constantly trying to figure out what is the best way we can create learning platforms where people are disciplined and come back every day 
where, um, or nutrition or health or meditation programs where people are keeping up with the exercises. And in a world of so many distractions, in the world where people feel overwhelmed and so busy, what do you think are some mental models that our audience could apply so that they could be focused, accurate, reliable, disciplined on their personal growth journey? I mean, two that really come to mind are commitment and the default effect. So um, commitment is really what you're used to hearing about commitment. It's you're committing to something. But what people miss is that you can use your own biases to really help you commit better. <laughs> and so there are ways to do that. For example, um, social pressure or yeah. financial. Yeah. So, uh, you know, joining a gym, <laughs> you know, you you back to the sunk cost, you know, some people are really pushed by the sunk cost fallacy. If they're paying out a certain amount of money every month to be part of a gym, they feel an obligation to go to the gym. Sometimes people that that money amount isn't enough. And maybe it's a, a relationship with a friend where you get together and you and you agree that you're going to exercise every every week. For us, I know that we've often tried to work on eating better. And um, if we don't both try to eat better, we don't eat better. If one of us is eating bad, the other one's more likely to get drawn into eating bad. But working together as a couple, you know, is much easier to to influence us to have better nutrition. Yes, you want to work social pressure and even financial pressure, if you can, into your commitment. And then the default effect is similar to really taking the forcey function to the next level. And what the effect really is, is we do defaults. Everyone who, um, if you use the defaults on your phone, you generally don't change them, as an example. Um, there are other great examples of this. Um, the one we use in the book is um, organ donation. So in the US, in many states, organ donation is not the default. Um, in some areas, organ donation is a default in many European countries, just when you get a driver's license or sign up for voter registration. In those countries where it is the default, they have 80, 90% organ donation rates. In the countries where it is not the default, the rates are more like 10, 20%. And all that is is a default change. And so in terms of relating that back to your daily habits, if you can create a default setting for yourself that you're always doing something every day um, and that becomes your routine, that is the way to really, really make it a routine. Um, and so like Lauren and I, for example, another thing we do is we walk every morning um, and that's our default is eight to nine a.m. We're walking, um, and you can you can try to schedule in your calendar. You can do a bunch of things to really force the default, but you really want your default feeling to be like I got to do this thing. That that's beautiful. I love the default effect, and um, I'm guessing it takes a while for that to become a habit, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the idea is is that you know. There's plenty of things you do every day. You know, you take a shower, you brush your teeth, you know, you have a routine. And if you can incorporate something into your routine, it becomes something that you don't even think about anymore. You know, like scheduling, you know, just even trying to do uh, 15 minutes of of basic exercise in the morning or something like that, where you just it's part of your day and it becomes something that you don't even think about it adding something that wasn't already there, you know, it takes a little while for that to feel like it's always there. Those are really interesting ideas. I've come across them in books like Atomic Habits. And uh, as I as I told you, I just interviewed Robin Sharma, which is why I have this book on my desk, The 5am Club. And he speaks about the, he doesn't use the word default effect, but one of the things he points to is research that shows that 
if you stick to something for 66 days, it becomes permanently a default. It becomes a habit. So, so those are really, really, really fascinating. I'd love to, to just in our last five minutes, go a little bit deeper in that because, um, the biggest thing about our audience is their passion for personal growth. These are people who are training for a Spartan race. They have a, in a powerful meditation practice. They are constantly upgrading themselves. That's the mind valley way of life. Are there any other mental models that you think would be particularly useful to this type of individual? And I'm talking about you guys who are listening here. So one that really comes to mind is something called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And what it really explains is how you feel as a person when you start to learn something new and move from being a novice to an expert. And this was studied scientifically and been repeated many times. And what happens is when you first learn something, you make a lot of quick progress because you're completely new at it. Think of learning a completely new skill and you feel really good about it, but you overstate your ability in your mind a bit. Um, and what happens is pretty soon after you have a huge drop off in emotional feeling because it becomes much harder to make progress and you see the experts and you kind of understand what the gulf is there. Um, but you really overstate in the opposite direction how bad you are and how long it's going to take. Um, and so knowing this effect can really help you stay a little more even keeled in emotionally when you're going up the learning curve. Because what happens often is people just, when they hit the trough, they just drop off. Yeah. The, the opposite um, model is called imposter syndrome. And so this is, this is a scenario where you somehow don't feel that you're good enough or that you can't make a, a good contribution because you're somehow not what you thought you were. And it really hinders a lot of people in their personal growth of like not taking a chance, not applying for a job, not trying because they think that they're not they're not worth it in some way. And so some people are overconfident and some people are underconfident. And the it's finding the balance that's important. I know in our in our HR department, we 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 talk about the Dunning Kruger effect because very often we find that more junior hires, right? And and there's a study on this. Seventy percent of people vote themselves above average. If you know anything about that, you know that that doesn't make any sense, right? So we find that junior hires, whether it is in engineering or it's in design, tend to think they know more than they actually do. So they are sometimes shocked when they might get feedback that might be less than proclaiming their brilliance. And the Dunning-Kruger effect is a really real thing in corporate hiring. And what you're saying is that we always think we're better than we actually are. But the more we learn, the more we realize there is more to learn. And so true masters, true experts know that they're only scratching the surface. Would that be a way of describing the Dunning-Kruger effect? Yes. And then the way, I mean, even if you know it, it's kind of hard to overcome because you're kind of have these emotional triggers. And so one way to really like get around it is to find a expert to help you practice um, whatever it is you're trying to learn. So at work, you know, that's really having a good manager to really help you give that feedback and take it in a good way. And we talk about other models from the book, but outside of that, it's probably getting a coach of some kind um, to really help you understand where you are along that learning curve. And then the other thing that's great about the coach is you, you probably covered this before in other ways is they help you do deliberate practice, which is another model, which is the best way to learn something, which is helping you go right outside your comfort zone 
and practice whatever skill that is in a way that they can give you real-time feedback on doing better at it. So like if you were learning to type or act or um, juggle or just do better at engineering, you want someone who's better than you who can tell you, hey, you just need to do this a little bit better that way or this way. And so if you have a, a another, a, back to forcing function, if you have a forcing function like a one-on-one with a coach every week, um, they can help you maintain your equanimity along the Dunning-Kruger effect. Right. So so that's one. And I see how, and you can see how you can stack these together, Dunning-Kruger effect, forcing function. But you mentioned something else, which is interesting. And I just want to touch on that before we end, imposter syndrome. Let's go back into that. Imposter syndrome is when you don't feel you're good enough. Would that be correct? Yeah. And it, it's related to the Dunning-Kruger effect because after, like you said, junior employees may feel they're way better than themselves. Once they kind of internalize the feedback you've been giving them and they realize that there's so much, much to learn, they all of a sudden can take the opposite approach and feel that they're worthless or useless and they feel like they're an imposter in their own job. And that has the opposite negative consequences because it means people aren't really trying to get better and they have a fear of failure and it can cause um, all sorts of anxiety and um, and people not doing their work and all, all sorts of things you don't want um, as a employee or an employer. Um, and so you really need to recognize when people are in that state as well and help them realize that, hey, you're actually pretty good. You just, you're not a, you're not a world-class expert. You could become one maybe. You just need to work up the learning curve more. That's beautiful. See, those two itself, I find could be so useful when I have conversations with new people who join the company. So thank you so much, Gabrielle and Lauren. The book is called Super Thinking, Upgrade Your Reasoning and Make Better Decisions with Mental Models. And before we end, okay, I also want to point out that DuckDuckGo, freaking amazing. You know, I love what you're trying to do in terms of get people out of their own search history bubble, because I just went to DuckDuckGo and I searched for Mind Valley, And what I see is the main, it, it even feels more accurate than Google because it's showing me what truly matters. Whereas when I get to Google, it, you know, it shows me pointless news and articles that don't necessarily matter when, if, if I, if I wanted to get like an overall view of a particular company. So I can see how powerful this is. So I strongly want to encourage you guys to go check out this book. How many mental models did you say are in this book? About 300. 300. That's insane, but that's powerful and useful. Check out the book, Super Thinking, and try out DuckDuckGo. You'd be surprised at what it's like to go beyond the the scope of Google. And I'm a big Google fan. I just spoke at Google Chicago. Google is one of our clients, uh, but DuckDuckGo has something fascinating about it too. So thank you so much, guys. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Gabriel. And hopefully I'll see you again on the Mind Valley podcast. And all of you listening, if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and leave us a review. We can't wait to hear from you and mention Super Thinking in your review if this episode touched you in some way. Thanks, guys. I'm Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health? 
your mindset, your body, your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.